Welcome to the MacFab Engineering Podcast, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and bricked micro... Wait, that's not good. Bricked microcontrollers? You got something to explain to do, Stephen. We're your hosts, electrical engineers, Parker Doman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 343. I, you, you got me there. What you brick? Okay, so I... I I ran into a situation that really sucks with with bricked microcontrollers. And I say bricked, I I don't know the right word for it. Bricked is the best word I, I can use to describe it right now. <clears throat> so somehow the magic smoke stayed in, but you still can't make it work. I can't. Uh, I, I have microcontrollers. So, so here's the timeline. I had microcontrollers that worked, and now I have microcontrollers that don't work. That's the timeline. <laughs> <laughs> so okay I've, I've worked with pick avr and stm microcontrollers as like my main like throughout my career those are the main three that i've i've dealt with and out of out of all three of those stm has been the the, the, the biggest the one bulk. i've worked with uh and avr is probably number two and then pick is is the the last one and and they all have they all have pros and cons there's certain things i like about all of them and I, maybe I'm maybe I'll upset somebody by saying this, but I AVRs always seem to make me upset. There's just something like picks. Picks are picks are a little bit more wild west, if you ask me. There's a lot. It feels like there's a lot less hand holding with a pick. You have to do so much work to make a pick work. Like it's like here's a pick. And How here's much registers you have to hit? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Like just to like, set it, stuff up. Yeah, you're right. It's it's like with a pick, they give you just like here's a pick, here's a wrench. You're going to be turning a lot of screws and nuts on this thing, and like your code, you're going to have to ping a ton of registers just yeah. to get the thing to even turn on. And I get that, like there's this mentality, I guess, where it's like, um, like I'm in control of everything, and yeah. I kind of like that. I write my own header files for my for my controller. Well, remember that's like, what we perfect. ran. That's what we ran into with the original macro watch. Yep. All like how long ago? Six years ago at this point. Yeah. We're like, we couldn't figure out. So there was one pin on, we were using like a <laughs> pick 16, I think. Yeah. And like, but like an old the, version of a pick 16. Very old. It was the cheapest microcontroller that you can get at the time. It was like 50 cents. Yeah. Cheap, and like, low quantity not even high quantity so 50 cents in like 100 units and one pin was not working and it was like we couldn't figure out why and it was a footnote on one page of the data sheet that said oh this defaults as a comparator output for like a op amp and it's just like wait what what and so you had to go in and hit a different register to make it a gpio and just like it's stuff like that. That is pick in a nutshell. Yeah, exactly. And with pick, you kind of have to you not memorize the data sheet, but you kind of have to read through most of it such that you know all these little like pitfalls, right? Yeah. And, and, and on the other side of the spectrum, you have STMs where you use their STM cube programmer thing. And oh, it, like, yeah, the configurator. You configure everything and then... Pfft, it just spits out and like all your registers are set up and it's like, and it literally has in the code. It's like your code goes here, like put it <laughs> yeah. here kind of thing. And, and I kind of like that STM is STM is so much easier than both pick and AVR. Uh, what about EFM eights? Uh, you know, Remember that hot is, minute that we did some stuff with that. I spent, yeah, it, th that's, that's a really good definition of it. I spent a hot minute with an EFM eight <laughs> that, and that's about it. So I, I'm not qualified to talk about, about them the picks avrs and stms are the ones where i've spent two hot minutes with uh just just long enough to be able to complain about them <laughs> but okay so so with with avr i've run in i ran into an issue that happened gosh this happened months ago but it, it took until now for me to like sit down and actually kind of figure out what was going on so so i had an operator hit me up it was and and i got the classic hey i I've I've got this kit and I'm trying to program it and can't program that that's that's what you yeah. get like that's your diagnostics these won't program help me out so I try to help 
this operator out and and things are going weird like i I go through all like the regular stuff are things connected properly are you you know are you following all the steps properly are the boards built right yeah yeah not even that like the the, the really simple stuff and it's like okay great so bring the boards to me they bring them to me i can't program them like they're just acting strange i try four four different programmers like the actual physical interface programmers mm-hmm. i'm i'm getting all kinds of weird issues with them and the 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 odd situation is some of the programmers or some of these um units i can actually talk to them i can get to that initial point where like okay cool like the programmer clearly spoke to the processor and the processor and got like a chip back. id Exactly. It got it got a chip ID. And then immediately after it throws an error and you can never talk to the thing ever again. Like no matter how much you try, like every single time you try to connect to it, it just throws an error. That's it. Done. Bricked. Uh, so so the, these these particular units have the processor is an ATX Mega 16A4U. So it's the X Mega line of mm-hmm. AVR is not the regular a- I've, AVR. I don't think I've ever used an X Mega. Well, and and one of the things about these X Megas is is they they have a a PDI programming interface, which is a proprietary thing. It's program and debug interface PDI is what they use for that. It's sort of like OneWire, I think. Uh, like I might JTAG. be wrong about that, but uh, but yeah. So the whole the whole thing is that it was supposed to be. It's like ISP with JTAG. Okay. All together all in yeah. one like easy package, two wires and a ground and you, you, you got it, you know, and, and some power. And, and so <clears throat> programming these things was, was an absolute nightmare. I ended up finding a way after, you know, I, I honestly shelved them for a long time because I was like, I really don't want to deal with this. I've, I've got other things. And now, uh, th- <laughs> you know, things at work have changed to the point where it's like, okay, well, I finally really need to look at them. So I started looking at them. And, uh, and, and eventually I got to the point where I was like, okay, all of our programmers are third party, like AVR ISP or, okay, or, yeah. uh, whatever, all these other things. Uh, eventually I was like, okay, I'm going to buy the official Atmel ice, which is like the Atmel's like, or I, I should say Atmel it's microchip. Now it's microchips, like official AVR programmer. And, and, you know, you, you can, you can go on Amazon and buy, you know, $5 programmers all day long that, that can do PDI or ISP or uh, all these other protocols, or you can get the official one for like 150 bucks. And uh, I was like, okay, let's, let's get the official one because this is, these things are acting weird. Every, every time I've ever worked with AVR, it's been, it's not the most straightforward thing, but like I, I can coerce them to work. Let's just put it that way in terms of programming. But these ones, the, the, processors seem to brick as soon as i would establish communication and then try to either upload the hex file or try to program their fuses done that was it and that's fuses are are sort of one of the weird things about avrs you know most most processors have things that are akin to fuses but but in the avr land you have fuses which are registers that change characteristics about the processor that are separate from your code or what your code is trying to execute it's kind of like a on boot configuration that exactly exactly so the things like watchdog timers brownout detectors uh startup delays sometimes frequency like how the pol loops are set up yeah or or like where uh like what uh, what pins are doing what for what clocks like is mm-hmm. is x pin sharing a clock with this internal oscillator or things like that yeah internal oscillator or are you talking to a crystal or are you talking like to a, an oscillator like, which those, you know, those are more of like the older avrs for sure yeah yeah um but yes well and 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 it's funny because we were we were joking about picks earlier because pick microcontrollers also have those but you don't you don't burn fuses in the same way. You write that into your code. So yeah, like picks are picks are those one of those things where it's like everything is at your command in your code. Whereas AVR is almost everything's at your command except for these special things that go outside of your code and are programmed separately. Yeah, they're in like your configuration file. 
yeah, effectively for your programmer. And and there's multiple ways of of doing uh, writing fuses. I mean, if if you compile them together with your hex file into an elf file, an elf, you can have your program and your fuses in one file that gets burned, or you can manually enter your fuses and your lock bits and things like that and do them separately from your your uh, your program. So so on these on these uh, units that I was working with. I have the I have the proper Atmel Ice programmer. I end up going and, and downloading the most up to date processor definitions, which come with Microchip Studio. Because my, after Microchip purchased Atmel, they made Atmel Studio obsolete, and mm. they converted everything to Microchip Studio. Which, if you download Microchip Studio, what it basically is is it's it's everything Atmel Studio where they just scrubbed off the logo and put microchip on it. I swear to God, like everything is identical. It's just, they now call it microchip studio. And, and one of the reasons why I think it's important to get the most recent up to date, uh, micro microcontroller definitions is so that all of your registers point to the correct locations and mean the correct thing. When you do like a pull down list and say, Hey, I want watchdog timer on. If you say on it's, it's properly going to the correct register. register. <clears throat> uh, but this AT Mega or ATX Mega 16A4U is not a new processor. It's been around for a while. So I wasn't worried about the definitions being wrong, but I just want everything to be as, as good as possible because I can't figure out what's going on with these things. I try to talk to them and they crap their pants and then I can't talk to them ever again. And I even tried multiple units pulling off the processor, hot air soldering a new processor on, talking to it, and it would brick. Uh, so and it wasn't it wasn't board dependent. It was not board dependent. Definitely chip I was, dependent. I was worried I was worried that there was some incorrect soldering, that maybe something was going weird with that. Perhaps there was some power supply dependent something. I was reaching grasping at straws at this point because I'm like, this doesn't make sense. So I, I end up finding out that well, okay, so let me let me go this way. I end up finding out that if I programmed, if I tried to program anything in the incorrect order, it would brick, and that was it. There was one very specific order of button clicks in order to make these these chips program properly. Anything, any other direction you go was a guaranteed failure. So. You had to you had to connect to the to these units. You had to program fuses first. If you did anything other than fuses first, they died. So fuses first. Second, you had to program the the hex file for your actual mm -hmm. program, and then third was your lock bit. You had to do it in that order. So I started going through all the fuses because it's like, okay, so what's magical about these fuses that they had to go first and not not the hex file. Cause I've certainly programmed plenty of AVRs where I did the hex file first, and then, then the, the fuses, fuses. And, and like, I've never run into a situation where it matters. And I, I started looking through and one of the, one of the options in the, um, in the fuses was the brownout detection level. You could choose what voltage the processor would brown out at. And so I was like, okay, so in the, ATX Mega 16A4U, the brownout detection was anywhere from like 1.5 volts all the way to 3.3, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, and we had it set at 3 volts. And we're powering these processors off of 3.3 volts. So that shouldn't be a problem. I just, the, the power easily goes past the brownout detection. But I, I started looking at other adjacent uh, processors in the in the definition list to see okay what are their brownout levels, and I noticed that the same register definition that I was doing writing a one to a particular bit in there would uh, in other processors could mean three point four volts, which is above the above the, your the, level above my 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 regulator voltage. Well, so so what I ended up doing is actually buying some 3.6 volt regulators which is right the edge of operation for the processor but it can still handle 3.6 installing those and then trying to rewrite the fuses that ends up not being the case because at first I, I was worried that the register definitions 
that microchip had were incorrect. Because I just I, I can't explain what's what's going yeah, on. Yeah, what was here. going on? And and that ended up not being the situation, which was annoying because I was like, ah, that would be awesome if I found that. I mean, it would suck because every bricked unit, I'd have to install a 3.6 regulator, rewrite the fuses, the and then put a 3.3 back on, right? Yeah. But that didn't end up being the case. So I start looking through all the other the other fuses on this, and they're just things like watchdog timer, startup delays, uh jtag communication and, and and things of that sort but nothing really seems like it's anything that would prevent a processor from starting up so the other thing that really sucks about all of this this processor is unicorn pixie dust right now you can't buy it it's not available until 2023 so any all of these units that are bricked i can't unbrick them by buying a new processor and following the proper Path. steps I, I think we were we were i think our, our our quantity was was 80 is what we were trying to make of this unit and there's probably 20 of those are bricked maybe more uh because i i ended up finding the correct path of you know here's the button clicks yeah. that guarantee it to work and uh it's just super annoying i think uh avr the way that they have everything set up where that's even possible to brick your units without knowing it. And and I talked to the original coder just to make sure that it's like, okay, in your code, are you accidentally writing some fuses in yeah. code that are conflicting with the fuse? Well, you should be writing. Yeah, yeah. Right. And, and no, this is also a mature product that ha this has never happened before. So um, I'm sitting here thinking like, okay, are these microcontrollers getting damaged in reflow in weird sectors or something like that. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm starting to grasp at straws at this point. So I hate to admit that like, I don't actually have a solution right now. Uh, and I wish, I wish like I had like a happy ending to all this other than the fact that like, I do have a whole batch of units that are functioning and I'm confident in them. But, but this is one of those situations where it's like, how is it even possible to have this sequence work in in a different order and it just completely destroys the processor i can't even figure out what definition which which fuse byte is causing these things to not fire up mm -hmm. um something especially if you just do it if you just loaded up the hex code right why can you not write the the fuses after that right if hex code comes first the units they lose all communication if fuses comes first Hex code is fine after that. And then the program works no problem whatsoever. Yeah, so something it, it kind of sucks. Something about that microcontroller startup is if it's got code or if it's not sitting in like, you know, address zero, it's pointers, it's not sitting there in a big old loop, then you can't do anything. Yeah. That's so so one other thing I wanted to touch on real quick that going through all this process has made me made me think of in, in a manufacturing setting, one of the things that I, I is worth considering when you're talking about what processor you're going to use is who's going to be doing the programming. So if you get chips pre-programmed before they go on your board, that's one thing. Like if, mm. you're, if your volume is large enough to do that, that's, that's really convenient, right? But in a lot of situations, that's not, you're not large enough to do that. So after your device goes through assembly it then goes off to testing or programming and they have to physically connect and program stuff well with with avr there's not really a good situation or a good program that is a standalone program solution for programming the chip so you yeah, they don't you, have a uh like microchip has icp yes and stm has st link which is a small program that you can you can email it to somebody and and that's a programmer that just connects to their their ST link programmers and that's it like you you're done yeah. it just push a hex onto it AVR does not have that so you have to download the whole like 900 megabyte AVR studio you have to basically equip all of your operators with a computer and this large program that is somewhat confusing it doesn't have a nice standalone programming interface that's just for programming. 
there is a VR dude, which is a command line programmer. And I've seen a lot of people like when I was at MacFab, I dealt a lot with AVR dude. There's, um, and, and it's, that's convenient. If you're writing your own little scripts, you can call AVR dude. The thing about AVR dude is it's community supported. It's not necessarily microchip supported. It doesn't have all the definitions that you're looking for. Uh, and, and even in the situation with these, uh, 18 mega 16 a four use. I couldn't program them using AVR dude. I was looking for a different solution to see if maybe there was something wrong with AVR studio. No AVR studio was my only option when it came to these. And so that's worth considering when designing a new product, you know, uh, the, if, you know, it's one thing, like if I have one of my operators that sits a few offices down, if they're having trouble with microchip studio I can go down, walk down the road and, or rock, walk to their office and help them out with it. But let's yeah. say your, your whole manufacturing facility is in a completely different country. And now you're asking them all to download microchip studio and you're having to support that and, and do training on that. It makes it exponentially more difficult. So I'm not trying to like discourage people from using AVR. It's just, I've run into a lot more difficulties with them than a lot of others. Yeah, uh, AVR is for sure. Um, I remember one time we flashed for a customer. Man, this is like six years ago. The customer gave us the wrong fuses. Mm -hmm. I think you remember this. The customer gave us the wrong fuses, and we flashed those. And then, of course, you know, we flashed the fuses first, and then it won't accept any code at all. And we had to go in and manually solder the uh a leads onto the uh the oscillator chip and then force fed it like a megahertz square wave <laughs> that was what the that's what the the fuse was expecting it, like it, instead of like having like a normal crystal it was except accepting a uh it was a it was looking for an active oscillator not so a we crystal. had to like force feed it like a a signal yep yep that was fun. Yeah, at that, that was point, like a hundred units. <laughs> at that point, it's 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 almost worth just hot airing the the processors off and putting a new processor on, starting from scratch. You know. Yeah. You have to you have to weigh both those options because both suck, right? Yeah, I think we ended up like using probes out of the uh, like hacking up some multimeter probes and then stuck those into the. Uh, so we used a. Um frequency generator right yep. yep and we just kind of like stabbed the board with the multimeter probes that had the signal on it and we were able to make it work and and then re it was like i was like holding the probes and then steven would would reflash them on the computer <laughs> <laughs> that was a that was a fun couple of days trying to figure out how to make that work yeah those are not fun yeah and that's that's another thing too like when I say that these microcontrollers were bricked, the, the, the level to which they're bricked is I couldn't even get to the erase the chip operation. Because yeah. usually it's like, okay, great. I made a mistake. Erase chip, start over. I, as, soon as, as, th as soon as they're messed up, I can't even talk to them anymore, mm -hmm. which is it's, it's, it's almost baffling at this point. Luckily, yeah. we got enough of the units out that like, will fulfill orders. And things like that, but it's it's still. I wonder uh, if you should talk to a, uh, you know, an FAE. Yeah, I I may end up doing that. Yeah, because that's really weird. Especially since you can't like even with like the official programmer like recover them in some way. But the, the FAE is gonna be like, well, you know, on like page four hundred eighty three in this like footnote, there's like the order of operations to properly program these and it says that you can't do it the other way or yeah i mean you didn't read it it's your fault yeah although but but that's just the thing okay we're talking about a mature product that has been around for many years same processor not same we, process of programming it same process of programming it never happened this way this but this newer batch of a of avrs that we got they're, I know they're acting changed, up this way. I know Atmel changed like the 328P a little bit. 
That mm-hmm. was like a couple of years ago, though. What do they change about it? Something with how the oscillator worked. Oh, okay. <laughs> and it screwed over all Arduinos. <laughs> I don't know about that, but no, I don't. I just so. remember they, that they I, wouldn't I actually, do that. We, we talked about it on the podcast. Hmm, I don't remember that. Yeah. We've done this long enough that I don't remember <laughs> a lot of what we talked about. The um, so I've been working on a uh, long, long term project, kind of like re- revisiting almost, I guess, at this point. This is this is a project that we've talked about like way back in the day. Yeah, way back in the day. Um, this is a long running project between Chris Kraft and I um, a long time ago, probably about s- s- around 2016. I was working on my red Jeep like always. <laughs> and uh i had some mods that were in the engine bay that basically i had to move the original air cleaner where the air filter would go couldn't be in the stuck location anymore um and so to move it i kind of just like cut a hole into like the like cowl area and so it sucks air from like the cowl which is like the area between the hood and like the firewall area uh, for a car. Anyways, drilled a hole there and I'm like, okay, now I got to figure out how to hold an air filter, right? And uh, to do that, um, I wanted like a canister that would go around the air filter. So, you know, it would only suck air from the cold area, the cowl, right? Um, and so... This is around the time where I started getting really into like actually like designing 3D modeling stuff um, and 3D printing. And it was really around the time too where like 3D printing large objects on hobby printers was starting to become feasible. Like before this, the designs weren't really stable enough to print a big thing. Okay. Something like an air filter box. For a car you think about something like the size of a basketball like in size um nowadays you can go on amazon and buy a 350 fifty dollar printer and you can print the entire build volume almost no problem or they have those uh, i've seen them now they have uh what conveyor belts where it's like infinite print right yeah infinite printing yeah um so the first design we did was a fully 3d printed part um, so it has like cones on the end that adapt the air filter uh, to like the three inch intake and outtake size for the hoses. Um, and uh, I wish I had a, a picture here, but I'll put it in the show notes. And um, we originally printed it with PLA uh, glass fiber reinforced PLA. Um, and it worked. It actually worked really well. Like it proved out the concept, right? Um, the problem was the PLA didn't really have a really high melting point, And so it just kind of deformed over time. Um, and so like being goopy. And the really the big problem was around the uh, where the hoses would attach to the air filter box. They're, they're, they're clamped. The hoses are like silicon and they're clamped to the edge. Well, you clamp plastic and the plastic starts to deform and the add heat and starts getting really like. Uh, gooey is a good term for it. Um, the PLA gloss fiber didn't really hold up under uh, for a under hood temp uh, that well. It lasted for about two months in the summer, and then it was like it was done. So, I I was still like trying to figure out if we could three D print something, um, but I was kind of like running out of time of that phase of the Jeep, so to speak. Um, so I basically looked at what tools I had available. So I'm like, I have a 3D printer, but the plot, the materials that we can print aren't handling it. Well, I have a welder now. So I just welded one together, bought a round, you know, steel tube, welded some ends to it um, and uh, made that hold the filter. And that worked great. And it's actually still in use today. Um, the problem was uh, the uh, filter I need a new filter for it now. And the filter that I use is not manufactured anymore. So that's always fun. It's like a cone filter. Um, and it was a uh, 
filter from a company called Amsoil. And Amsoil basically just discontinued that whole line. And I tried looking for another cone filter that kind of fit that dimensions and just nothing is around anymore. Um, and so I went to um, another manufacturer called Ingen and they make a lot of different cone filters in standard sizes. And so I bought one of those. Fortunately, it doesn't fit my housing. So I have to build new housing. You know, it's never simple, right? Never simple. So I could modify my big steel container that I made um, by cutting out basically inside a bit and then like welding new pieces onto it. But I was like, you know what? I should revisit the 3D printed aspect of this project, right? So I designed a new one. This time, taking everything that Chris Craft and I have learned about 3D printing, like high temperature materials and that kind of stuff, and what didn't work about the first design and what worked with the second design, and then combining it all into this new design and see if it works. And so the, the new thing is the material, printing with polycarbonate. Um, I do have some parts that are have been in the engine bay for like the past two years that the polycarbonate holds up just fine. It doesn't look melted or goopy, just, just looks dirty. Um, so that, that's been working really good. So I'm going to print the end caps for the, the air filter box um, on my printer. I actually already printed them. Um, and so and I'm using, uh, and one thing I learned was uh, over the years is screws into 3D printed plastic just don't hold up because of the layer adhesion, right? Because it's, it's just going to want to, when you put a screw, like let's say a, a threaded screw into some 3D printed plastic, it's going to eventually fail along the lamination lines. Um, and so how you fix that, use heat set inserts. And so um, you can go on like Amazon and you can get heat, cert, uh, heat set insert adapters for soldering irons. And like most soldering irons are supported. So just go like find what your soldering iron is and then go find uh basically they're like laved brass cylinders that just fit where your soldering tip would be and you can just slip the the heat set insert and then you just gotta stab it into your 3d printed part and it kind of like goops up everything around it so it kind of holds it in um and it's got like it has teeth uh, on it right teeth on it and then kind of holds in they work really well um a lot of a lot of products are put together with them and so I use that on the ends. Um, and then for where the hoses go on, though, I found some aluminum mounting brackets that are for three inch hoses, which is three inch ID is the uh, intake and outtake of this, this air filter. And um, it's all, they're already pre machined, ready to go. Like and they're like eight dollars or something. So I'm like, oh, perfect. Two of those. So I have machined aluminum intake and outtakes so when the silicon hoses clamp down on it it doesn't distort the plastic or anything like that and then i'm like okay the main body this is where we're getting a little little wank <laughs> carbon fiber tubes oh man yeah so i found a um a company that builds carbon fiber tubes for telescopes for like diy telescopes so i bought a six inch carbon fiber tube is it the uh, so? Are the do you know what its temperature rating? I mean, it's carbon fiber, but is it uh, like two hundred something degrees? Celsius. It'll be fine. Yeah, yeah, it'd be fine. So nice, and I'm really looking forward to like like building this like super futuristic car air filter from like my Jeep now. Instead, of, like the in part, it's it's going to weigh a lot less. That's for sure. I need to weigh the the steel one because the steel one weighs, I'm going to say like 15 pounds. Easy. <laughs> and this will probably weigh like two. If that. So this is round three, really, or it will round be three. round three. Yes. And uh, I'm hoping it works out because I'm really looking forward to like pushing the 3D printer envelope in terms of like what you can do with it in terms of like... Um like instead of just making like trinkets and stuff like that, like when you go on like 3d printer forums, the fact that on like the subreddit, 
for 3D printing uh, on Reddit is there's like the 3D printing form and then there's another one that is like functional prints. For like the people who like want to actually use it for not silly stuff. I, okay. Little side note. I, I was thinking about it the other day, you know, Chris Craft, which he, he's in our chat right now. Thank you, Chris, for the 3D printer that you you sent off to me. It's it's a lot of fun. One of the things that I, I'm a little bit sad about is that I've printed a few things on it, but everything I've printed has been like a trinket or like a little sculpture head or, or something. I just haven't like found a use yet for for me to make something that is functional for me. And I want to like, it's not that like, it's not that I, I just want to print little like Terminator heads or Darth Vader's. See, or I something thought you were like going to print standoffs for like wires and stuff for inside I, your amp. <laughs> I ended up machining them on my CNC. <laughs> oh. uh, I was going to do that. That was, that was the case. Mm. And then, and then I came up with a better idea and they're aluminum and they'll never, ever be a problem. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's one of those. It's another when you start when you design stuff, it's just another tool to use. Yeah. Um, and that's how I'm treating it here. I'm like, OK, I can totally take this design and get it machined out of aluminum or. I just throw it up on my 3D printer and it will do it all like for like yeah. 50 cents a plastic. I think I think if I didn't have access to an unbelievably good CNC, then I yeah. I I would consider it more. You know, yeah. Like, because when I say I have access to a CNC, it's through like a service like Exometry or SendCut Send. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the pro- the Exometry for like well, actually, just CNC parts in general are expensive. Right. Like. If I sent you this, I should actually send you this part and be like, how much would you charge to make it for me? Mm, out of aluminum? Yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah. Not Honestly, though, it's a part that should feel. be done on a lathe, but whatever. You can you can do it on a on a access CNC pretty easily. Yeah. Was it like a was it a three axis? Yeah. Two and a half, I guess. Yeah. It's, you can totally you, do it easy. Yeah. Um, the, the, I, I have to admit, like just being able to draw something in fusion, like press, give me a program, walk over to the CNC and you have aluminum parts in matters of minutes is it's unfair. <laughs> yeah, that is a little unfair. I mean, I do the same thing with the 3d printer and that's actually how most right. makers engineers are like now they have a 3d printer that's within, you know, walking distance of them now. Right, right, right. So we'll see how well it works. Um, really, the only thing I can see that can fail is the, you know, polycarbonate end caps. Um, but polycarbonate is high temperature. It's resistant to practically any solvents. Not all, but anything that's going to be, you know, near the engine. So, yeah, it should work out. And it so, will use a it will use a standard air filter that I can just buy from multiple different manufacturers now. Yeah. So feature proof it a little bit. Third time's a charm. Yeah, and honestly, I would if I could just get the same filter I had, I would just you keep using the steel one. Yeah, just yeah. kept with it, right? Yeah. It's keep it's held up. Yeah, obsolescence is driving this. Yeah, basically. But it's like I could have just, you know, welded more steel and changed the original one that I've been using. But it was a good, good excuse to revisit the project and do a little like 3D design. Because like, I don't know, like kind of like you, I guess like you just go sit down at Fusion and like just design something. Mm-hmm. It's, that's a lot of fun to do. Man, I tell you what, I use um, Fusion for almost everything now. I don't want to make it seem like it's like the crutch or anything, but it's just, I've learned so much that if I design my whole system in fusion, I can skip a prototype because yeah. I can, I can make my mistakes in fusion fix no, exactly. them, and then buy the, the thing that works yeah. since I've been designing my systems in fusion. Um, I haven't had a, a system 
not work the first time yeah. around. And now it never works perfectly, Perfect. but, but it, but it all goes together. Um, I've had, I've had amazing success with that. So, yeah. Like I've been, um, using send cut send to make brackets and stuff. Yeah. Um, I'll still make super simple brackets on my drill press and cut stuff out. But whenever I cut something out, about 50, 50% of the time, it's wrong. And I'll be like, okay, now I got to make that hole a little bit bigger <laughs> so that the bolt fits now. Whereas, yeah. honestly, with St. Cuts, then like, I'll design it up and be like, okay, I'm going to sleep on it. And the next day, I'll look at it again and be like, oh, that hole needs to be here instead of there. Like, me, re- there's more remeasuring. You know, the whole like measure twice, cut once. Yeah. That it's more like measure 10 times, cut once at this point. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, those brackets always turned out great. They never, they never have a problem where I'm like, oh, I need to make that hole bigger now because the bolt doesn't line up. <laughs> okay, weird off topic, but but in relation, one one thing that I've always found really annoying is sizing all of your drawings for something that is going to be powder coated. So, if I don't know what the best way of doing this is, or I don't know what the way that powder or, or job shops prefer it. Cause I've actually done this more than, uh, in, in multiple ways. What, if I'm going to send a part off to a place to get machined, bent powder coated, like a chassis kind of thing. I've done it. I've done it both ways where I, where I've written a note on the, on the drawing saying all dimensions are post powder coat. And that's sort of a catch all term. That's like, you take care of it. Like you adjust all the holes. That's, such a, yeah. And that's assuming that the, like the thickness of the powder coat is super consistent too. Yeah. Well, I mean, there, there's a tolerance that's applied after that. And, mm-hmm. and I think there's also like a wink, wink, nod, nod tolerance of the powder coat too. Uh, but, but I've, I've done it that way and not had any complaints where the holes met, met my spec after powder coating because whoever was, reviewing my drawing adjusted all of their machinery to do that. Now I also did a, a chassis not too long ago with send cut send where I had them powder coated. They don't put up with that. If you want powder coating, you adjust the holes to Yeah. Uh, they took, the they took your DXF lasered that directly. Uh-huh. Yep. And then powder coated. So I, I actually have a chassis that I, I, this is a little bit annoying, but I have a chassis infusion that has two saved files. One is, you know, the real chassis drawing. And then the other one is the chassis like adjusted for powder coating, which I kind of wish there was a way to like automate that process because my chassis have so many holes in them. I wish I could choose like a hole and say, this this is a hole that's intended to be powder coated. So adjust it by X mills because of powder coating. Um, that would be super nice in a drawing package. Now, I don't know if AutoCAD does that. They might. I bet you it has a tolerance feature for holes. I wonder what that yeah. does. I yeah. never experimented with it. I haven't either. I haven't I haven't played too much with the tolerance. I usually mm. draw my stuff in Fusion to like spot on what I want. And yeah. then in my head, I keep my tolerances in check. Yeah, so for like... I guess I don't do a ton of crazy tolerancing stuff. Like for my 3D printer, I like I calibrated it. Like you can judge like how much e steps you know it takes, how many steps per millimeter basically it takes yeah. for that printer. But you do it on like a 20 by 20 by 20 millimeter cube, and you t- you pull it out and you go, yeah, it's 20 by 20 by 20. But that's there, you know. The tolerance will expand as the part gets bigger. Mm. You start printing big things. So what I end up doing is like, okay, I'm like, this is a critical dimension for whatever I'm printing. I will just slice that out of my model and print it and be like, how close is that to my critical dimension? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because it's like, you know, like the uh, end caps. The end caps, it's the, the part, the critical dimension for that is it fitting into the carbon fiber. So it's a nice, um, doesn't have to be an airtight fit, but a good sliding friction fit is what I want. So, like, it just slides together tightly. Um, you know, funny thing is just thinking about that. I don't have the carbon fiber tube, and, and there's no tolerance on the inner dimension for that. So, we'll see how close it is. Um, I might have to end up reprinting the end caps. Um, 
But yeah, so I'm like, it says it's six inches, plus minus question mark, right? And so I, when I printed it, I, I, I cut out that section, printed that, and I was like, okay, that's actually six point blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like, it was only like a couple of mils off. So I'm like, okay, I just have to make it a couple mils smaller, and boom, done. Printed right at six inches of uh, dimension or diameter. But I'm going to get like the tube and it's going to be like slightly oversized or something like that. I mean, you can always calibrate your machine to be spot on or you can just continuously iteratively adjust your program to be right if you have the time, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's calibrated, but it always changes. And so what I typically do is what is like, what was the critical dimension? And then I'll just tune the program for that critical dimension. Yeah, to me, that's not that means not calibrated. If if you're having to adjust your program based oh, off of some of us don't have factors. forty thousand dollars CNC machines. <laughs> some of us have three hundred dollar machines. <laughs> I you know I hate to say it, and this is not like a puff up the chest thing. It is way more than forty thousand dollars for those machines that I have. But you'd be you'd be surprised at what money will buy though the the ease of a machine when you spend a ton of money that's what we paid for we we paid for a machine that is oh, highly intelligent lose. oh i'm back okay I, i'm hearing you you got me yeah okay so it says it's recording it's still recording on your end it's recording on my end really really weird Okay. Can y'all yeah, hear well, us out in chat land? Looks like uh, the Twitch stream's still going. It kind of like did a weird thing. It hiccuped? Yeah. Yeah, your connection is unstable. Mine is? No, it said mine is. Oh. I think we're good now, though. Okay. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, one of the, one of the really big benefits of spending a lot of money on a CNC is it makes programming it incredibly easy. It makes setting it up unbelievably easy and it is intelligent to not break itself. Yeah. Like I could have spent a 10th the amount of money and gotten the same amount of accuracy, but I would have had to have done a lot more training on people to, on how to set it up, how to run it, how to make sure that it's like always happy and things like that. The, uh, in fact, somebody, one of, one of our employees the other day was like, Hey, look, I'm really interested in learning about CNC machines. Would you be able to teach me? And I was like, I'll show you our super ultimate CNCs that we have. Uh, because I know I can train you in an afternoon and in an afternoon, this person was setting up programs for production and running them. Now I'm not like I, th- that's not their job and that's not what they're going to be doing. But like, yeah, sure, I'll 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 devote a few hours and show you some stuff and you know and at least get your feet wet in CNCing. And one of the things that I told this person afterwards, I was like, look, I just taught you this. You're already running production for this company. I was like, don't assume this is how all CNCs run. Like you got you got the Rolls Royce <laughs> package here. Yeah. Like if I and I, and we have a Tormach. CNC, which is a very manual CNC. I was like, if if we ever ran this, it would it'd be like night and day. Like finding zero on on that machine takes a long time. And like being careful about all your cuts and all your setups and like you have to manually adjust your coolants and things like that. And it's just a completely different beast. So mm-hmm. well that's why I like um I started a lot of my small stuff I, I print on like an SLA printer now because it's that way. It is it is literally throw goop in the machine and press go. Yeah. And it works. I you know, I've I've seen some some enhancements in SLA that's really impressive. I feel like there's enough people doing it now that there's enough interest in it now that the the would even what we talked about a few months ago about the the resin being brittle and not particularly mm-hmm. useful in in most situations that require some more demanding mechanical rigidity it like it seems like it's getting better 
it's getting better faster than FDM got better and faster. Sure. Yeah. And maybe, maybe that's because FDM looked more like a toy maker at first. Mm -hmm. Maybe people were blind to seeing what the opportunities were with it. Whereas SLA looks like you press a button and, and like your actual thing comes out of a pile of sludge, you know? Yeah. It is a lot closer to what I would expect quality wise from a product. I mean, I've sent you some stuff I've SLA printed and yeah, it's night and day. Oh, for sure. For sure. I like that story you told about, you know, a, uh, a, one of the, a, a customer where you printed something on an FDM and they were like, I don't like this. We need to change the whole design. You just switched over and printed it on SLA and they were like, oh, this is perfect. Good. This is perfect. This is exactly <laughs> what I'm looking for. Yeah. 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 The, the, the perception is real. The perception of, I don't know, cheapness or or not going to work for my application yeah in, just in from the, the optics yeah in the 3d printer world for sure at least in mechanical prototyping 3d print fdm 3d printing um i've had so many i i stopped showing customers that stuff now yeah yeah, yeah. for sure because it's it's one of those Five years ago, it would have it it blew like VCs' minds when you would show them a prototype like that. Nowadays, though, they have associated FDM printing with cheapness. I guess something like that. It's it's weird. It, I don't, it's not even probably just that. Um, I think it might be that they're expecting the final product to be shown to them now instead of like an iterative step. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. It could just be where we are at now. Um, Man, I've said this a hundred times, and and actually I'm doing it with um, my buddy Roz when we develop things. I've told him, you know, because you're my business partner and we're working on things together, I'm more than happy to work with you on anything intermediate. But when it comes to anything outside of our, our doors we don't show anyone anything that is not like 98% of the way there. Yeah. Meaning that that you're not ready to sell to that person. Almost. I mean, the, I I will get feedback from, from people on my um, products that I design, but they're already really close to being done. The, the only feedback is like polish feedback, not like, mm-hmm. do you like this? Are you, do you think we should get rid of this entire thing? Part of our system? No, I, I think the, the problem is a lot of people who, who mess around with your product. Um, you, you can't just preface it by saying like, Hey, this isn't ready yet. Uh, or this, this, this aspect of my, my project is not correct yet. Just don't pay attention to that. That's they're going to pay attention to that. That's the thing that they're going to criticize you on, you know? Yeah. So, oh yes. Craft lab. Yeah. It's, it's not because it's been around for a long time or a short period of time. It's the explosion of being able to use it. And now it has the perception in the prototyping world as by the way, engineers like Steve and I love it. Like, cause you can iterate and design really quickly and see how the form fit and function is going to work like within a day. Awesome. The problem is showing it to the people who pay the bills. And it, I think what part of the problem was around 2018 and 2019, there was a lot of products coming out that, like from Kickstarter and stuff that had 3D printed enclosures that didn't do that last mile to polish the product, so to speak. Or the 3D printed enclosure, they were okay with it looking that way. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I think I honestly, like those kind of people are expecting higher quality out of low volume stuff now, because honestly the machines have gotten there, right? Yeah, and 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 the the word quality there is a really loaded word, because 
what yeah. does quality <laughs> mean in that situation? Do you mean quality of a, of functionality or quality of aesthetics? Because if Both. we're talking about quality of functionality, most of the time that 3D printed enclosure will do the job. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's something that gets mounted to the wall somewhere and is, I don't know, does its thing and just sits there all the time. Yeah. The 3D printed enclosure is most likely going to be fine. But if it's something where somebody has to look at it and be proud of it and show it off to people because it looks nice. Yeah. No, it's, it's just not going to work on an FDM. Yeah. And I think um, it's also, if you're, Going to keep it a 3D printed part, you have to basically design it slightly different so it holds up, right? Um, I've had a lot of 3D printed mechanical parts uh, in, in products that that's what the customer wanted and that that's the stuff that ends up failing. And so you get this, this uh, perception that 3D printed parts aren't robust. They're, they're, they're plastic. They're robust as well as you can design them for whatever material it is. Well, yes, but at the same time, like you were saying earlier with layer ad- adhesion. Oh, yeah. The layers are not as strong as the actual plastic itself. Yeah, but that's you just take that into account. If you're designing it and your end product is going to be 3D printed, then you have to take that into consideration. Of course. Whereas yeah. like you can't just have a hole and just jam a, a, a thread form or screw into it anymore, which you could do for the ejection molded part. You've, you have to, well, I won't say have to. If it's designed to come apart a couple times, go back together, then yeah, you need a, a boss insert so it holds together. So. Yeah, it's just a whole new set of rules that you have to learn and abide by in order to get what you're going at at the end. Yeah. And it's not as simple as, say, if you have a shape already done and you're getting an injection injection molded, you can change the material and adjust the properties of it with 3d printing. I don't think it's that easy. There is a little bit of adjustment in terms of your material, but not as much as like, okay, I have a, an, an injected plastic piece. I can, I have the whole world worth of materials that I can choose for different properties mm-hmm. with 3d printing. You physically change the shape to change the properties. The um and what Craftlab is saying is it's uh the mid nineties a three D printed prototype off of a Stratus was fine even impressive so it's odd to see a shift as shift to it seen as unacceptable it's not just as unacceptable I just think they've VCs have now seen it all the time so it's not impressive anymore well, every every engineer's got one of these on their desk now. I think there's another uh, another aspect to that, and I think social media comes into play. Every time you see a 3D printer on social media, it, they're not designing a cool it, in air injection tube for their car. They're designing yeah. like a Pokemon statue or something like that. Yeah. So you get this idea that they're that these machines are really cool, but only used for toys. You know? Yeah. No, that's and, actually probably part of it too. Yeah. I think that's a that, I think that's a really destructive part of it. Uh, and and on top of that, I see I, I see it personally a lot on on my social media where I see somebody 3D prints this whole thing and it's like, oh cool, like you you clearly set up your 3D printer really well and you made this cool like animal statue. And then they get out and they hand paint it. And that's that's cool, but if we're like I always think of things in terms of like if I wanted to manufacture that that would be an absolute nightmare. I wouldn't 3D print a thing and then pay people to sit at a table and paint it. And I think VCs... Well, you're not Wizards of the Coast. <laughs> sure. Making miniatures. But, <laughs> but I think VCs think of uh, think of things in that way as well. And so if, you, if, if the majority of the information that you're ingesting comes in that sense, where you see these machines ac- uh, printing toys, and then you see people doing very labor-intensive operations post the machine working in order to get this thing. That's just a trinket that sits on your table. That's what you attribute to the machine. And it's totally untrue, but it's understandable that people would think of it that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, with that bombshell, we'll end this podcast. That's the end of top gear though, isn't it? Oh, well, 
So that was the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Gilman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you. Yes, you are listener for downloading our podcast. If you got a cool idea, project or topic or have something mean or nice to say about 3D printing, let Steve and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer or at Analog ENG or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. You can find it at MacFab.com slash Slack.